Welcome to the Building a Story Brand podcast, where we believe if you confuse, you'll lose, noise is the enemy, and creating a clear message is the best way to grow your business. I'm your host, Donald Miller. I'm joined by my co-host, J.J. Peterson. Hi, J.J. Hi, Don. Good to see you. Good to see you as well. J.J., there's things I want you to know. Go. One, I'm not going to hurt you. Aw. Mm-hmm. Two, <laughs> two, I really think next year is going to be your best year here, and many more after that. Ah. Three, there's nobody behind you. <laughs> well, thank you for all of those things. I appreciate it. <laughs> Do you feel like we have made our culture better by me telling you those things? Like you and my's culture? Well, like just at the culture this table. Story brand. Like at this our, table. Is our this, culture... Our culture better. Is because, our culture better. Yeah. I mean, like knowing that you're not going to hurt me, at least physically. Because I like to say that to people right when I meet them. Hey, hey. I'm Don. I'm not going to hurt you. I'm not. I'm not going to use these hands to karate you. I, am. I, I I prefer to say it with my eyes. Actually, yeah, I don't. You think the words are a little off-putting? They might be. They might be. When somebody just walks up to you and go, "Hey, real quick, I'm not going to hurt I'm you. I'm not going to hurt you. Yeah, I'm not going to hurt you. I'm not going to hurt. Yeah." Even you. I'm not going to hurt you. Because that, that feels like at some point you're like, hey, you deserve to be hurt. But just so you know, There's no way. I'm holding back. I'm not hurting you. Yeah, you can't say that without being creepy. I'm not going to yeah. hurt you. Come here. I'm not going to hurt you. <laughs> These things are important, according to Daniel Coyle, who wrote the book, The Culture Code. Ah, uh, okay. That's no, what, see the transition? Your transitions it are on is, point today, it's once again. Amazing. It's amazing that we get so many calls from people, they want help clarifying their message. Yeah, yeah. But not in their transitions. Weird. When it's clear that we are good at it clearly yeah clearly <laughs> he says there are three things every team member is asking are we safe here uh-huh. what's our future with these people uh-huh and are there dangers lurking and you took care of all three all of in I the said, intro. I'm not going to hurt you. <laughs> yes. You're going to be around next year next doing the great year, things, and there's nobody behind you. Yeah, even though there's a wall behind <laughs> me right now, yes. Well, that's probably why you feel I so feel, safe. I, I try do. to put a wall behind everybody when oh, I talk to them. I put, yes. I like to back them against the wall and say, <laughs> I'm not going to hurt, hurt you. you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Obviously, we're taking him a little out of context. Well, a little, but barely. <laughs> but <laughs> once you hear the interview, you'll get it. Yeah. But that's an interesting take. I think that's actually really, really true for most people because... Yeah, I mean, that's basic. That's really basic. Yep. Like, if you want to discover, hey, even before we have a hard conversation, hey, you're safe. I've read so many different studies where it talks about how turnover in the workplace is less about are people enjoying their jobs, but do they understand where they stand? Like, are they doing right. a good job? Are the goals defined for them? Do they understand if they're hitting their benchmark? Because you may be knocking it out of the park, but if you don't understand what life is supposed to look like for you in the role you're playing, that's a very unsafe yeah. place to be. You're in a story and you've lost the plot. Yeah. Nobody's given you the plot. And that's just mind-numbing. Yeah. That's very difficult. Anyway, we talk about culture a good bit on this show. Mm -hmm. And I think people know by now how important it is to your bottom line. Yeah. And I also think, because we're dealing probably with mostly like 70% smaller companies, yeah. a lot of us don't have time to think about culture. Yeah. And so we just need some quick paradigm shifts. You know, we're driving to work today. Just do these couple things, because I think it's very easy to improve a culture. Yeah. There's just a mindset about it. You got to check your heart, make sure that you're for the people that you're working for. That's 90% of it. Yeah. You have to hire people who don't screw up your culture, those kinds of things. But we also have to look around, especially if somebody's kind of acting out a little bit, and we have to ask ourselves, okay, do they feel safe here? Do they know they have a future? And are they afraid there are dangers lurking? Yeah. And so it might be, if you've got somebody acting out, you might call them into your office and just say, hey, I want to know how you feel about your job. Because I think you're doing a pretty good job. 
And let me ask you this. Do you feel safe here? Like, do you feel like you have job security? Because I want you to know that you do. If they do, don't lie to them. Yeah. And we're all for you. Those kinds of things might stop a lot of behavior that's unproductive in the workplace. Yeah. And I think it's huge. The book is called Culture Code. Again, the author is Daniel Coyle. It's a New York Times bestseller. It's a great book. He's got a great perspective. Let's get right to it. Here's my conversation with Daniel Coyle. Daniel Coyle, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Don. It's great to be here. Well, listen, your book, Culture Code, is all about how to not just create a great culture and give people a better place to work and all those kinds of things. It's connected to the bottom line. And I'm fascinated by this Harvard study. They took 200 companies over 10 years, and they realized these companies have a 765% increase in net income if they have a good culture. Can you explain that a little bit? Because you talk about it in the book. Yeah, I mean, we all know, you know, all your listeners have heard, you know, culture eats strategy for lunch. We feel it when we walk into a great group, whether it's a great school or a great restaurant or a great business, you feel it instantly, right? And yeah. we know that it's valuable. We know that it's maybe, you know, it's kind of the holy grail of business success, but we don't really know what it's made of. What is it really, really worth in the end? And so this study was 10 years. It was 200 businesses. They matched them. So they were similar domains, similar size, similar markets. And what they found is that companies with strong culture had, as you mentioned, you know, more than 700% in that revenue, better stock price, better everything, which sort of nicely frames what we're here to talk about today. Return on investment for creating a great culture is high. That's, it's massive. It's massive. It's the most powerful thing that you do as a leader, and it's the least well understood thing. So it's just, it's just huge irony. We all understand execution, strategy, whatever. But this culture thing is the biggest lever you've got. And what's it made of? How does it work? And our understanding of that isn't great. And that's what sent me on this, this five-year journey that resulted in this book. Before we hit record, we were talking about the Seattle Seahawks. And I'm an old Seattle Seahawks fan. And uh, Pete Carroll is familiar with your book. And we were talking about how great that culture is. You know, compared to news stories out about other NFL teams, and I'm thinking of one, and won't throw them under the bus, but where, you know, the players really feel used and they're a cog in the wheel and the coach doesn't really have any time with them, those kinds of things. It's hard to put a finger on, but walking through Seattle Seahawks headquarters, there's a feeling of optimism, there's a feeling of hope, there's a feeling of other people may not have seen your talent, but we see it. Not that if you don't have talent, you can stay anyway. That's not there. Right. But there is a sense of we see what other people don't see and we're going to give you a shot here. We're going to cultivate you. Can you explain what makes one culture good and one culture bad? And am I onto something there? You absolutely are. You know, you can feel it when you walk into a place and we can reflect all in our lives. There are certain teams that we've been a part of that we had that feeling. And what's that made of? And we use words like chemistry, we use like relationship. But the fact is when you dig into the science and when you visit these places, there's a series of steps that are going on to create that. And it's like this deep human grammar that's really about behavior. It's really about three yeah. basic behaviors. And that first behavior that creates that feeling you're talking about is creating safety. You know, creating right. safety, this feeling like I'm connected, like these people care about me. We share a future. They see me for who I am. And that in itself is like the foundation of everything else that comes, everything else that comes out of that. You have to have that first. What's your advice to somebody who, you know, they have to report to shareholders, their job is very intense, and they're not natural nurturers. Right. And, you know, bottom line is they've got to meet the quota or they're in a lot of trouble. How does somebody like that 
create a sense of safety, especially in the reality that maybe in terms of job security, there isn't a whole lot of safety. And in many cases, there's not. And so you can't be inauthentic and act like it's safe when it's not safe. But what you can do is create safety. Safety exists within relationships. There are really safe relationships. A great example of this would be the San Antonio Spurs, the most successful organization in sports over the last 20 years, better than anybody mm-hmm. else. And they're working at a very high, very, very tight margin. They have very high standards of excellence. And when you go and watch them relate, the safety is inside the relationships. I visited there after they had lost, the day after they lost a big game to the Oklahoma City mm. Thunder. First thing the coach did was go over and write to the guy who missed the big shot the night before, puts his hand on his shoulder, and then starts asking him about the dinner that the coach had arranged for the player the night before, and the bottle of wine that the coach had ordered for the player and his wife. This sense of connection and care inside that relationship is what really drives that. And it was funny, afterwards, they went to go watch game films. I thought they were going to watch game films. And actually, what goes on the screen was a um, documentary from the 1964 Civil Rights Act, a CNN documentary. And he starts asking them, like, hey, what would you have done in that situation? You know, what did your parents do? So this intense curiosity about the person that you're with And there's just really, really simple things that people can do that I saw in all the places I visited. And one simple one is just to have an open face. I learned this one from a Navy SEALs commander who really worked with it to build trust. Like your face has two settings. It's either closed and your brow is kind of down and your mouth is kind of down, or it's open and your eyebrows are way up. That muscle is a really important muscle on your forehead that moves your eyebrows. To open up your eyes, to open up your face, and to use the open face to create that sense of like, hey, I'm here and I'm listening. And it's a stupid, simple thing to do. I mean, it's incredibly simple, but it still is powerful to create that sense of safety inside a relationship. Dan, you talk about three things that every one of our team members is actually asking themselves. And it makes complete sense to me in terms of making somebody feel safe. And I confess as a CEO myself, you know, I'm thinking about meeting our budget this month, whether we're hitting our goals, outside threats, people using our framework without licenses, those kinds of things. I'm thinking about those threats so much that I never think about the fact that my team members also are wondering if they're okay and if are things going to be okay and are they okay with me. I think they're thinking about the same things I'm thinking about. They're probably not because they're in a different position. You say in your book, are we safe here? What's our future with these people? And are there dangers lurking? Can you explain those three fears that uh, our team members have? It's basically the most basic signal that your brain is sending all the time. You got this chunk of your brain called the amygdala at the middle Mm -hmm. and down in the middle. And it is pre-language. It is a very old piece of brain. And it is constantly built to be your alarm system. So it's always surveying the environment, asking those three questions. Are these my people? Because for the last you know, million plus years, that has been a really useful question to survival, right? right? Like, do I trust these people? Are they they pushing away? So that's what good cultures get. And that's what good leaders understand, that you have to preemptively answer those questions all the time. Do we share a future? Yes, we share a future. That's what Coach Pop was doing when he walked over to that player who missed a big shot. Yeah. Who was worried about that. It was a five-second interaction, but it had a huge impact. And using those signals at certain thresholds can be really, really powerful, especially on somebody's first day, especially when there's a problem. You see good leaders really use a crisis to find a time to really connect and reaffirm their relationships and constantly be sending signals on that channel, the amygdala channel that's constantly saying, look, we share a future. We're connected. We're safe here. I love that idea of the amygdala channel, you know, talking to them at that primitive level 
and understanding the brain is very nuanced and complicated. That's just a wonderful image. Well, it's our guard dog, right? It's there for a reason. Yeah. And the cool thing is that it can flip to becoming a guide dog. It can actually kind of connect really intensely with the group once it gets a signal that, hey, things are safe here, which is why good groups feel so good. Like a lot of the groups that I visited, what was really interesting is they weren't necessarily shiny, happy places. That's a kind of an image that we have that's false about great cultures, that they're, everybody's happy all the time. They're not. It's really, they're intense places. You're doing really hard work. It's a different sort of like addiction of doing really hard work with people you, you like and admire and, and solving really hard problems together. So it's not like the idea of safety isn't like holding hands and singing Kumbaya. It's not that at all. It's just like, this is for real. I see you. We're working on this problem together. We're going to keep working on it down the line. And I really see who you are. And we share that. And so that's that sense of relational safety that they're really, really good at creating. Yeah, we teach that in marketing. We teach that, you know, if you can associate your products with a tribe or if your product becomes kind of a symbol of a tribe, a lot of people will buy the product, not for the product itself, but for the association with the other group of people who are going to help them survive. At least that's what the amygdala thinks. It's fascinating how it all breaks down to these kind of survival mechanisms, even in creating culture and in marketing and all that kind of stuff. The managers that I've had, the ones who have given me this sense of you're in the tribe, we have a future together, we're looking out for each other. You're right. They get more work out of me. What do you say to a manager whose instinct, and I think sadly a lot of managers who have this instinct don't realize they're doing it, but they actually want to dangle the carrot of security in front of their team members in order to get more productivity. In other words, you might not work out unless I get more of you, those kinds of things. Have you encountered that leader and how do you try to convert them to your way of seeing the world? And what happens with those guys? Well, you got to be real about it. That actually works for a short amount of time. Like right. fear works. It absolutely works. And so it is a tool in the toolbox if someone chooses to use it. What they need to understand when they use it, though, is that it, it burns out. It's a short-term, high-octane fuel that will create great motivation and great energy, and then it'll burn out and you'll be done. And so if you're looking to do have great energy for a short amount of time and you don't care where the relationship goes, go for it. That's how Bill Belichick does it at the Patriots. But if you are looking to build a, you know, really sustainable, connected, you know, sharing cultures, then not using it. So really just understand the dynamic of what you're doing as a leader because that sort of short-term fear thing – that authoritative approach, it really has worked well for the last hundred years or so in management. I mean, there are many systems and structures built on top of it. The challenge is that the world has changed and the easy problems have been solved. And what's left are really hard problems where knowledge has to be distributed, motivation has to be shared, and you need to have a whole group that almost operates like a school of fish moving through a coral reef, like solving problems and sensing obstacles and moving around them all together, which is not something that can be done by command and control, top-down, fear-based leadership. You think for a lot of executives, for a lot of leaders, probably most of the people, or a lot of the people listening to this podcast own a company or they're leading a company. Yep. How much of their time do they need to devote to just walking around, making sure that everybody feels safe? Is that a worthwhile effort to stop in people's offices and ask questions and those kinds of things. Is that the sort of thing you're recommending? Absolutely. It's more than worthwhile. It's that kind of relationship maintenance and nurturing that makes a huge difference when the crisis. When you're in that position, you're constantly given the choice. You have, you have this repeated dilemma in, in life that comes up again and again and again, which is, do I get progress or do I support the people? Do I push mm. this project or do I tend to the team? Right. And what I saw in the places that I visited is that they created these, they're basically like cultural calisthenics. There are times when the team circles up, 
and figures out what's really going on. It's not just about creating safety. It's the next step is really about creating vulnerability. It's about like using that platform of safety to figure out what's really going on, to exchange accurate information. And the SEALs were the best at this. They would finish a mission. I studied SEAL Team 6. And they'd finish a mission. They'd get off. It would be a mission or a training run. And the first thing they do is circle up and talk about what went wrong and what went right and what they're going to do differently time and it's really slow and difficult and kind of a painful meeting in a lot of cases but it's incredibly important because they're building on that foundation of safety to exchange information about what's really going on i'll be back with the rest of my interview with daniel coyle in just a moment hey it's august and you're probably putting the kids back in school the temperature's about to change Everybody's about to settle in. And usually, right in there, September, October, there's this renewed energy. There's this focus to end the year well. If you want to catch that energy early, if you want to have a plan when everybody else is feeling that and when you start to feel it, you want to have a plan to execute, attend our StoryBrand Marketing Workshop. It's taking place in September in Nashville, Tennessee. This one's going to sell out, so you want to register soon. In the workshop, you'll be able to clarify your message. And I know you've read the book, maybe you've watched some videos, but you're wondering, am I doing it right? You're looking for feedback. It's amazing how many people say, Don, here's my one-liner. And I say, that's actually not a one-liner at all. You're missing parts one and three. That's a tagline. And they, they end up with really sharp marketing collateral that they can use on their website, on their business cards, and email blasts, all sorts of things. They begin to talk about their business in such a way people actually respond. So you, you might think you're doing it right, but if you want to know you're doing it right, and you want to be around our facilitators who can tell you you're doing it right, and you want to be in a room with me and read me your material so that I can give you some feedback, you're going to sign up for our September workshop. That workshop starts on September 9th. That's a Sunday night. You fly in on Sunday. We have a big dessert and meet and greet on Sunday night. And then Monday morning at 9 a.m., we have a hard start. We work really hard through Tuesday at 5 o'clock, and you leave with a clear message. Not only that, we take you through the Story Brand Marketing Roadmap. That is, we help you understand the first five things you need to do to create a marketing plan that works. And this workshop gets a return. We find time after time our clients call us and say, boy, I made my $3,000 plus travel back in the first week as soon as they execute it. We actually hired an independent organization to review whether or not our product works and upwards of 77% of people get a giant return if they execute any part of the framework and then it just goes up from there. More and more people who execute more of it get a bigger return. So this actually works. You're gonna get your money back. Register today at storybrand.com and we will see you on Sunday evening, September 9th. Just picture yourself there. Sunday evening, September 9th, the weather starts to cool about two weeks later. All the energy is about finishing the year strong. Nobody else has a plan, but you have a plan to execute. That's what we want for you. Register at storybrand.com. You talk about these five questions that Navy SEALs actually ask after they do a mission. I have a friend named Kenny Thomas, and Kenny was one of the Army Rangers who was shot down in Somalia, and they made the movie Black Hawk Down about him. He's, of course, incredibly tough, and he now trains executives in a great training. One thing that struck me about he and his buddies, some of whom were also in those helicopters who do this executive training— these guys will cry right in front of you about some of the memories and some of their fallen friends, and they are vulnerable guys, the toughest guys you could possibly imagine, and they're not faking it. They're real human beings who cry about their bodies. You know, of course, it shouldn't surprise me, but it did. You know, yeah, it did. It made I me know. think, wow, this, this makes me like this person more. This makes me want to be in 
their tribe. Anyway, I want you to share these five questions. What are the questions that these Navy SEALs are asking? In the context of what you're asking, just to sort of pull the camera back for a second, you're exactly right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's really their strength. When you look at those special forces guys from a distance, what you see is kind of bulletproof confidence and they always have an answer. And when you get the closer you get, the more you see that vulnerability really is the heart of what makes them tick as individuals and more importantly as a group. That vulnerability you sense and that connection that you sense through that is what they create all the time. They have a, a habit. It's almost like this cultural calisthenic. That it's called an AAR, an after-action review. And they get off the helicopter after a training mission or a mission itself, and the first thing they do is circle up, and they start focusing on what went right, what went wrong, what are we going to do differently next time? And they're really, really simple questions. They're really simple questions, but they're incredibly powerful because they force people to be vulnerable. They force people to share information and to build a shared mental model of what you're trying to do together. It's funny. We had an event recently where we had some, some people from the Cleveland Indians, some doctors from the Cleveland Clinic, and also some Navy SEALs. And as a result, the Navy SEALs went to watch an operation at the Cleveland Clinic, some of the best doctors in the world. They did an operation, 11 people. And Afterwards, the Navy SEALs were invited to watch the operation, and the doctors went over to the Navy SEALs and said, hey, help us. What, what did you notice? What did you see? What can we do better? And the Navy SEALs like put their heads in their hands, and they said, we can't believe you guys didn't do an AAR afterwards. Like You had, you had this incredible – you had 11 people. You all had this <laughs> wow. incredible experience together. You did this incredibly intricate, high-performance thing, and then you just walked away? Like, wow. could not believe it. And as a result, the surgeons now are doing AARs after every operation. So it's this incredibly low-hanging fruit that applies to teams everywhere, I think, especially with your listeners. We do uh, what we call WIG sessions after uh, four disciplines of execution. And at the end of every month, we tend to just go, okay, well, here's where we measured against our goals. Now let's go after the next month. But I love these five questions. I'm going to incorporate them in our company. What were our intended results? What were our actual results? What caused our results? What will we do the same next time? And what will we do differently? Those are really just incredibly valuable questions. And even as you tell that story about the Cleveland Clinic and the doctor's not circling around doing the AR, I'm sitting there going, oh, heavens, why haven't we done this? This seems like the most obvious thing in the world. And the conversation that come out of it is really cool. It's a little painful, like, but think about it. It's sort of like exercise. Like When you go to work out in the gym, you want to experience pain because you know it'll make you better. And that's what these meetings right. are because it's kind of tough to talk about what went wrong. It's kind of tough to talk about the gap that you had between your intended results and your results. It's much easier just to just to move past it, but no pain, no gain. I mean, it's exactly the same kind of dynamic, but that is the moment where your group, and it's called a vulnerability loop. I mean, there's, this is what it does. It creates cohesion, creates trust. And the bigger picture is that we think about vulnerability and trust the wrong way. We typically think like, I've got to trust you in order to be vulnerable, right? Like we're going to build up some trust, then I'll be vulnerable. We have it totally backwards. If you are vulnerable with someone, if you are exposed weakness to them and they expose weakness to you, you get closer. You build trust. You, you actually create trust and closeness. And the science backs this up uh, in a really fascinating way. So that idea, I think, is an incredibly powerful one for groups and for your listeners. The idea that, hey, we need to find a way to sort of habitually operationalize these moments where we tell each other the truth, even when it's hard. How does a leader model vulnerability? You know, it's a signal that can be sent a lot of different ways. A really good way was told to me by Laszlo Bach, who used to run People Analytics at Google. He says, you can send a two-line email. And the two-line email is, hey, I'm trying to get better. Please tell me one thing you want me to keep doing and one thing you want me to stop doing. 
Hmm. It's a really okay. simple email, right? It doesn't. Yeah. You're not asking for 20 things. You're asking for two. And it is simply a way of sending a very big message of like, I want to learn. I want to get better. I'm not above you. I really want to help. And so there's a lot of different ways. And another way to, to send it is really around the frame of learning. Admitting weakness is hard. And you don't want to just sort of say, hey, I'm, I'm an idiot. But you do want to at some point say, hey, I don't know this stuff. I don't know. I'm, I'm weak in this area. Please teach me. And that's a really good frame to put on it through to say, hey, help me out. Okay. Three solutions to our culture problem. One is build safety. Two is share vulnerability. And then the third is establish purpose. How do we establish a sense of purpose in our team? Yeah. Well, first is to kind of realize where it fits into the whole thing. You know, safety and vulnerability feed on each other, almost like a spiral. The safer you feel, the more vulnerable you can be, which makes you feel safer. But purpose is about like, where are we going together? If we're that school of fish, like where's true North? Where are we trying to go? And what I saw in all the places that I visited is that they over-communicated their story by a factor mm. of about 10. We normally think the purpose kind of resides in your heart or your gut, you know, the idea that we just are going to know our purpose in our hearts. What I saw in these places that I visited is that they repeatedly filled the windshield with vivid, like emotional GPS, simple, super simple metaphors, corny mantras that captured what they wanted. They captured where they wanted to go. They captured true north. And it seemed in every case to be overdone. It seemed like they were kind of, when you walked into that environment, you felt kind of assaulted by them in some ways. Like even with the seals, like, you know, some of their mantras are like, we're the quiet professional. The only easy day was yesterday. We shoot, move and communicate. They say that all the time. It's kind of funny. They, they talk <laughs> all the time about how they're the quiet professional, you know, which is yeah. kind of ironic. But it's the same sort of thing where you see it over and over again. And one of the better illustrations of this was with this restaurant chain. Danny Myers, one of the better restaurateurs of the world, his restaurants are like the Pixar of the restaurant world. They're amazing. Right. And he opened one restaurant. It was successful. He opened a second and it was struggling because, of course, he couldn't be in both places at the same time. He was what great looked like. Like when he was in the room doing stuff, everybody knew what their culture was. But when he left, they started to slip. And so he realized he needed to be a ton more explicit about what the culture was, what their story was, what their purpose was. So he closed the restaurants, went on a retreat, and started writing these mantras, like these corny mantras. And it was, what's our true north? It's creating raves. That's true north. How do we do that? And he started saying, the hospitality reflex, loving problems, mistakes are waves, our servers are surfers of those waves. And, and they, wow. they go on and on and on. And he's got, he's got a hundred of them. And they're, and they're really- No wonder he's doing so well. Oh, yeah. they're all kind of corny and you wince a little bit. But actually, they're genius. They really yeah. clearly define what they're about, especially when the group encounters a problem. And I was there one time, actually, and this guy dropped a tray of glasses. And Danny Meyer, he was watching real intently, like, what was happening? And I said, what are you looking for at this moment? What are you looking for? And he said something I'll never forget. He said, one of two things is going to happen right now. Either this group is going to come together, fix the problem, and the energy level in this room is going to go up, or there's going to be some hint of anger and resentment, and the energy level is going to drop. And I mm. thought, that's the most genius litmus test of any culture, Right. How do you react when things go wrong? On that day, the energy level went up and he knew that everything was good. And you could really see all of those mantras begin to really live themselves out like the excellence reflex. It really is the words of the leader and the actions of the leader that tell everybody, whether the leader's there or not, how to respond when the guy drops a bunch of glasses. I mean, it, 
without the narrative arc, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. You know, you have a problem and you just get distracted by the problem. And I'd also add that a lot of those mantras get created in conversation with everybody and by observing yeah. things. It's not like they get imposed from the top down. They more get dug out of the ground from the bottom up. And when they see a great story, one of the most powerful things I saw smart leaders do was just to capture great stories, great stories that showed the benefit of the group in action, that sort of connected the group to a larger, a larger benefit outside the group and shared those stories around. You know, and I would add that the narrative needs to be crystal clear and everybody needs to understand it. Just yesterday, I was with a group of executives and it was a design firm, an engineering firm who creates all sorts of things, skyscrapers and sewage industry stuff and that kind of thing. As we talked about their culture, they actually have a very good culture. It's an amazing organization. One of the things we noticed, though, was that their mission statement was something like to increase the quality of life through X, Y, and Z. As soon as the CEO told me that, I kind of talked about something else for a few seconds, then went back and tried to state it again. I couldn't state it. So I asked him, can you repeat that again? I had to ask him three times. And then I said, you know, if you actually framed that mission as a narrative, I think you would get more buy-in. Like if you, and I just pointed to the window behind me because we're overlooking a city landscape that they half built. And I said, so if you said something like urban design causes a low level of anxiety, but our buildings actually create a sense of peace and a productive place for people to work. Well, now you have a villain that you're fighting. You have a problem that people feel. And there's a reason for me to show up in your office every day and give my best, because if I don't, people are going to feel a low level of anxiety. And, you know, he sort of agreed with me. And I said, let me just illustrate how effective your mission statement is. You've got 180 people in this building. I could go to each of them and ask them, and not one person would know what the mission statement is, even though it's written on your wall. And then he kind of rolls his eyes, says, well, I don't know that that's true. And I literally turned to one of his executives in the room who had been there the whole time, and I said, can you say it? And he couldn't say it. It's not just messaging. I mean, it's not... We use these cliche kind of things that are not memorable, that nobody really understands. They kind of go in one ear and out the other. And I think everybody listening, most of the people listening are doing this in their companies. They have some sort of... Well, we exist to make people better. Right. You know, I could put that on my gym. Right. I could put that at my doctor's office. I could put that in an engineering firm. I could put that in an architectural firm. I could put that over a Whole Foods sign. I could, if you can put it over every business in the country, then it isn't unique and nobody's going to remember. That's right. And I love this idea, and I love, of course, we're big fans of narrative around here, but that you actually incorporate, you have to be the director of the story, like the director of a movie, if you're going to lead an organization, you have to dictate the narrative. Otherwise, people won't know what role they play. Is that true? Yes. Stories are the greatest drug ever invented. And they, they change people's that. brains and they are the perfect delivery system for ideas and identity. And that's why they are used at every possible level. That's why these places use artifacts. That's why they use image. That's why they use metaphor. It's funny. Those are the greatest assets that any organization has. It's kind of its ecosystem of stories. And smart leaders, I think, tend to that ecosystem and farm it and nurture yeah. it and make stuff grow in that area. And when there's something exciting to share, they share it. It's funny, you know, people think about you know, in this area of purpose is like, oh, we have to write a mission statement. And that's not it at all. You have to build a whole forest of stuff. And some of it is just a <laughs> metaphor. Some yeah. of it's an image, some of it's a story, some of it's an artifact. And you need to continually tend it and continually grow it and have it evolve. All these businesses, you know, nothing is carved in stone. Everything is sort of changing all the time. You know, it's so interesting, Dan, that sort of in my business, you know, it started with me creating a product, our framework, and then 
starting to do some marketing and hiring a team. And now that all that exists, and that's sort of phase one or in phase two maybe of building an organization, I find that the more time that I spend doing what you're talking about and the less time I spend actually building a new product, the better my company does. It's almost like my role shifted at some point to you know, putting seeds in the ground to now caring and tending for the hearts of the people who are dealing with this giant farm. And I think it's okay. I just want to give permission to our leaders to say, maybe you're working half the time on the wrong thing. Maybe you need to get your hand off the shovel and actually start meeting daily with all these people who are carrying shovels all around you and care about them. Maybe that would actually exponentially increase the amount of work that gets done in your organization. Dan, this has been a fantastic conversation. The book is wonderful. It's called The Culture Code. It's also a beautiful cover. Congratulations on whoever designed this. Appreciate it. So you can get it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, wherever you buy books, The Culture Code by Daniel Coyle. Dan, where can people learn anything else about you? They could go to danielcoyle.com if they're curious and or send me an email. There's a link there where they can send it. It goes right to my inbox. Great. Daniel Coyle, C-O-Y-L-E.com. Dan, thanks for the conversation. Hey, thank you, Don. Very good, JJ. Let's not feel bad about ourselves. We have room to improve on our culture. But yeah, what's your do. favorite thing about our culture? About our culture? Yeah. What's the thing? What's the practical thing we do that makes it like enjoyable? Besides donuts on Friday? Donuts on Friday. <laughs> Frisbee golf uh, out the back Frisbee door. Golf. Well, I think there is a difference between kind of just doing fun stuff like that that creates a fun environment, which I think is part of culture. But really, truthfully, my favorite thing about our culture is some of the things that you put in place from the beginning that I've been on is the idea that grace over guilt and the idea of that we have to be comfortable going out beyond the breakers. So the idea of we push ourselves harder as a team than maybe we're comfortable doing often like doing new things. But in the midst of that, there's a lot of grace. There's a lot of grace. There's high expectations and a lot of grace. Yep. So yes, donuts are fun and the Frisbee is fun. And, you know, sometimes I might start a dance party here or there, (laughs) but beyond that, It's really like those kind of principles, and I think that's really what culture is about, of what kind of environment you set for your people, and ours really, that I love, is we go out beyond the breakers, and it's grace over guilt. We have to be clear, Tim Schurer brought grace over guilt to us. Mm, I brought, we go out beyond the breakers. I didn't uh, want there to be any grace. Yeah, you're just and like, Tim sat me down and said, Don. Don, we need grace. I said, we, we swim up beyond the breakers, and if you don't make it, you drown. Yeah. <laughs> no, Tim you said, don't. No. That is not true. We all know that's not I true. I think one of my favorite things is something you bring to the table. We actually have honest conversations about things, yeah. and yet there's an enormous amount of kindness in those conversations. We, you know, Since the beginning, I've brought Lucy in, our dog, mm-hmm. you know, so we had a dog-friendly office, because Lucy. Yeah. And then Tim got Watson. You know, We kind of like put Watson in another room, and Lucy's like 11 years old, so it was fine. And then uh, we got, let's see, we got June Carter. You know, she's basically a tyrant. (laughs) She's basically a Napoleonic (laughs) attitude dog, Uh who I love, but she wants to run the show. And then we got Darla, uh-huh. Bethany's dog. And then we have Felix. Felix who, is in the And office there began today. to be a dog yeah. problem. There began to be, this was like a dog kennel meets story brand. And you had to go in and have, or Tim? Tim did it? Yeah. Tim had to have some conversation. We had to figure out a dog system. Yeah. And because we all love dogs and we, we all love, love dogs. having them in the office. But, but it, there are people who, you know, 
don't have a dog and really didn't sign up for dog daycare. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we had to have some yeah. honest conversations. I wasn't part of those, but it seems like it's gone really well. Yeah, like we still have dogs. We still have dogs. <laughs> yeah. And what is there? It's like a sign-up board or how does it no, work? No, it just kind of we work together to you kind of- You try to check and see, yeah. is it okay if I bring my dog bring today? Bring them in and I, we usually I keep, have two We try to keep in. June out of the office. Because <laughs> she does she get a little excited. She is the problem. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's a conversation coming. So uh, that's the thing. If there's tension around the office, it's probably because- just haven't had really honest conversations yeah. and probably haven't had really honest conversations because we don't know how to have those conversations and get what we want without making people feel unsafe. Yeah. And that's a, one of the big things we can take away from this interview. That is a learned characteristic. And if you learn it, boy, you're set for life. Yeah. I mean, cause you can get the things that you need to make happen yeah. in order to succeed and also keep friends. Yep. You know, there's a book called Crucial Conversations and, yeah. and they call it the fool's choice. The fool's choice is I either get my way or I lose my friend. Yeah. And they're, they're saying that's a fool's choice. It's, you can actually you know, see progress happen and have an important conversation and keep the friendship. Yeah. And I think that's really true. So I appreciate Daniel Coyle and all that he's bringing to the table. Music from this episode is by Andrew Bell. You can listen to Andrew's new record, Dive Deep, on Spotify or on iTunes. Thanks, as always, for listening to the Building a Story Brand podcast, where we believe if you confuse, you'll lose. Noise is the enemy, and creating a clear message is the best way to break the culture code.